Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And I don't know about you, Marcel, but in 100 years, I hope this podcast is among the top three things people remember about me. Let's talk about mortality and legacy in the sorting chat. Wow, what a great idea, Hannah. Before we get too far into the segment, though, Marcel, I have one other question for you. Yes, what's that? Are you a sicky? I'm a sicky. I've got, I've got coronavirus. Oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. Two years being so careful. And then betrayed by your own son. My own itty-bitty little baby brought home this incredibly vicious and cruel pandemic virus. And uh, you know what? I still gave him so many kisses because... Well, what are you going to do, not kiss a baby? I know, right? I probably could have avoided it if I had just not given him kisses. No, there's no way because he just like sticks his slimy hands in my mouth all the time. There's no... He like will sneeze in my face. He's really bad about wearing masks too. He's a real (laughs) (laughs) anti-masker. And he hasn't been vaccinated. Wow, this baby's canceled. Seriously, right? I know. So the top two things I want to be remembered for, one... Which, please. Two, canceling babies. What about you? (laughs) I think I would like to be remembered for at least one hot take. Ooh. (laughs) Mm. Maybe it'll be coronavirus. It sucks, right? Marcel Cosman, a bold truth teller. (laughs) And then maybe the other thing I'd like to be remembered for is, uh... <laughs> You're looking around like, uh, t- <laughs> mug, uh, chair. I want to be remembered for chair. You know, it's amazing because I wrote this 
segment topic. So you would think that I would have come prepared. No, your brain is full of the vid. Yeah, it's like really, it's like sort of sloshy. Anyway, yeah, I think I'd like to be remembered for one hot take. So speaking of life writing, you know what I would love is for someone to posthumously Maybe not posthumously. I think I'd like to be around. Okay, so humusly. I would like someone to humusly collect all of the funniest random shit I've ever just put on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And just cataloged it and been like, this bitch is pretty funny, huh? (laughs) Listeners, just a heads up that if you want to give Marcel a really great gift, just put all of your favorite of her tweets in a book and title it, this bitch is really funny. What a legacy. Isn't it amazing how the idea of being put in a book really still makes us feel like we'll last? And like, why? There's no evidence to support this. (laughs) I, for one, have never read a book. Mm -mm. I don't even know what a book is. Well, I know one thing I don't want to be remembered for doing, and that's forgetting my lessons. Let's make sure that doesn't happen in revision. So, Marcel, today's topic is life writing. And in order to really get into it, we should probably take a look at a few major topics we've covered before. Starting with, I want to say, monomyth? Absolutely. In our first episode on book one, we talked about chosen one narratives and Joseph Campbell's theory that all literature has the same core concepts, including but not limited to things like the hero's call to action or adventure, the hero's crossing of thresholds and descent into darkness, some trials, probably a dragon, and then, you know, the old journey back home. In that episode, we unpacked the archetype of the hero, drawing attention to how it has shaped Western expectations for protagonists throughout literature. Real literature, it is implied, is all about trials and triumphs of white, heterosexual, able-bodied men. Blah, 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 blah. Speaking of expectations, we should probably also revisit our episode on structuralism. So similar to Campbell's belief that all literature can be reduced to a hero's archetypal journey, structuralism claims that narrative consists of these consistent structures, hence the name. So Even though the particular building blocks of a story can be more or less complex, and even though they can appear in a bunch of different arrangements, structuralism is interested in how these consistent structures or patterns produce meaning when they come into relationship with one another. So, like, if a character is encountering a mean mommy dragon, what does that tell us? So because of how knowledge is produced via power and discourse, these theories get taken for granted as representative of all literature. Mm -hmm. And since this is hugely reductive and wrong, we can look to the ways that major movements like critical race theory, feminist literary criticism, queer theory, and disability studies, just to name a few, have made interventions in the dominant Western literary disciplines. It's really not surprising that once we start taking other kinds of stories seriously, we begin to see other kinds of people represented in literature. 
Who could have seen it coming? <laughs> and this this whole question of whose stories we take seriously and how we attend to them is important in so many ways, not just within the discipline of literary studies. For example, in our episode on rape culture, we talked about who is believable, whose stories are treated as significant, and how these sort of larger cultural narratives about sexual violence shape our real-world treatment of survivors and perpetrators. Honestly, there are so many threads we could connect back to life writing that I'm kind of surprised we haven't done an episode on it before. Oh, same. (laughs) What are we doing? (laughs) Before we start tying these threads together via some new theory, I'm wondering if we could point at some of the ways life writing plays out in this book series. Just so listeners have a sense of like how applicable this approach might actually be. If you're listening to this and being like, these are novels, what are you guys talking about? I think that's a great idea, Hannah. There is a ton of interest in life writing in the wizarding world, whether we may notice it immediately or not. And I think that we could probably point first to the fact that memoir and biography appear to be some of the only kinds of books that people read for pleasure (laughs) in the wizarding world. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we probably should have talked about celebrity, too. No time. But you're right. There are a whole bunch of memoirs in these books. I mean, Lockhart has like 17. (laughs) We'll come back to that. We will not. What else? Well, this book in particular, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, is really interested in memory and its accuracy. Harry's big mission, right, is to get a memory from Slughorn that Dumbledore believes, with good reason, has been (laughs) falsified. (laughs) And Harry has to journey through all these memories about Voldemort to learn about Horcruxes. So, I mean... I don't know, Hannah, do you think we can think of memories as life writing? I kind of think we have to, particularly the way that they're framed in this book. I would also argue that even Snape's marginalia is a kind of life writing, because the question of how people represent themselves and how others engage with those representations is all over this book. Totally, right? Like, Harry doesn't think that the Half-Blood Prince is an asshole, but, like, he is. (laughs) But we'll get to that later. No, we won't. No? Okay. We're not really going to talk more about that marginalia. In fact, I very specifically want to talk about pensive memories and how they function as a kind of life writing in this book. All right. Well, in order to do that, I am going to request some theory to help me figure out how to do that. Deal. Let's do some theory. Ever wonder how lived experiences transform into memory? And then how memory gets transformed into story? Let's talk about it in Transfiguration class. You know, Hannah, I feel like the average person doesn't totally appreciate how cool and interesting life writing is. I know I didn't until I learned about it in grad school. Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty good reason for that, which is until quite recently, life writing, like so many other popular genres of writing, wasn't considered to be a legitimate object of literary study. Right? Literature constituted a, like, really limited set of genres, and life writing was not included in that. 
So life writing was absolutely used by historians as, say, evidence, but there's been this tendency to treat life writing as just that, as like evidence or reportage, and not as its own kind of literary production with its own ideologies and tropes and genre concerns and publishing histories and all of that stuff we like to talk about when we talk about how to read literature. That's because we're materialists. (laughs) Yeah, we're material girls. Living in material worlds. And of course, even within the use of life writing as historical evidence, there's been this bias towards whose life writing actually counts as evidence, whose is worth reading. I am shocked (laughs) to learn that. No. However many episodes into this podcast and people are still alarmed to find out that there might be like (laughs) structural power at work in what narratives we consider valid. (laughs) So, you know, we're more likely to read the life writing of people who were in power for a variety of reasons, because those accounts are much more likely to have been preserved. For example, footnote, see our episode on archival studies about Ooh, power talked about that and in preservation. Revision. No time! <laughs> but, you know, there's power in whose stories get saved in the first place. There's power in who has access to literacy, technologies of writing, publishing, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Hand-in-hand with taking life writing more seriously has also been this expansion of what we consider to be life writing in the first place, you know? Like, is a 17th century woman's journal that documents her household labor, is that life writing? You know, Hannah, I think we should define life writing. You know what? That's a great idea. So it's a pretty complex thing to define, I'm going to keep drawing throughout this whole transfiguration class section on the work specifically of Sidoni Smith and Julia Watson, who are two of the really key figures in the study of life writing and really kind of in its emergence as a field of study. Like they wrote a lot of the sort of early important texts, particularly the early texts that were about like taking the history of women's life writing seriously. Gotcha. Because it probably wouldn't be super surprising if life writing becomes a legitimized thing of academic study, but only the life writing of, like, powerful white men. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Smith and Watson have a ton of excellent work on the topic, like so many books. But I'm going to specifically draw on their book, Reading Autobiography, A Guide for Interpreting Life Narratives, which is kind of written as almost like as a textbook. It's just like, here is the major theory you need to know. And then here's some like specific strategies that you can use. It's so useful. And if folks out there are interested in learning more about life writing, this is a really accessibly written book. Fun fact, I have a copy and it was my textbook in one of my grad classes. Incredible. Was that grad class taught by Julie Rack? Yes, it was. (laughs) Julie Rack, also a great life writing scholar. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be citing from the second edition, which was published in 2010. Since then, they have written some excellent updated scholarship on reading digital life writing and thinking about like Twitter, for example, or Instagram as sites of life writing, but that's kind of beyond the purview of this episode. So helpfully for us, Smith and Watson begin their book with a definition of life writing. Oh, love that. Here's what they say, quote, what could be simpler to understand than the act of people representing what they know best, their own lives? 
Yet this act is anything but simple, for the teller of his or her own story becomes, in the act of narration, both the observing subject and the object of investigation, remembrance, and contemplation. We might best approach life narrative, then, as a moving target, a set of shifting self-referential practices that, in engaging the past, reflect on identity in the present, end quote. So, a few other key themes emerge in this introductory definition, including the complexity of thinking about authority when it comes to life writing, right? This idea that, like, when somebody's writing about their life, they're writing about the thing they know best. There's the tension between memory and narration. So, like, how well do you actually remember and how, quote-unquote, accurately are you representing what, quote-unquote, actually happened. Oh, there's going to be so many scare quotes in this episode. (laughs) And then we've also got that need to approach life narratives as texts, rather than assuming that they're transparent representations of reality. We also kind of get a definition of life writing as stories in which the subject and object are the same, that engage with issues of the past and identity. Mm -hmm. And that's actually very close to Philippe Lejeune's definition. Lejeune writes, quote, We call autobiography the retrospective narrative in prose that someone makes of his own existence when he puts the principal accent upon his life, especially upon the story of his own personality, end quote. I'm very touched that you put Lejeune in here for me, Hannah. Thank you. I mean, I know it wasn't just for me. I know it was also like for the mostly for you. So the reason that I'm a big fan of Lejeune is because he's the guy who came up with the idea of the autobiographical contract. Can you tell us about that, Hannah? I just find it so charming. I don't know why. (laughs) It's fun sometimes just to read a piece of scholarship that's like, here's a very simple system. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah, a simple system. We're going to break his simple system right open. But naturally, wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) Let's understand the system before we shatter it. So Lejeune wrote a pretty famous article called The Autobiographical Pact, where he basically says that autobiography offers a, quote, contract of identity that is sealed by the proper name, end quote. So that is like, I have put my name on the cover of this book. That is like, I have signed off on it being true or on me being that person. Totally. Of course. So he has, he has these conditions, these two key conditions for something to count as autobiography. First, he says the vital statistics of the author need to be identical to those of the narrator. So like same date of birth, same educational history, same parent, you know, grew up in the same place. Mm-hmm. And second, there needs to be an implicit contract those are his words, an implicit contract between author and publisher that attests to the truth of the signature on the book's cover. That is the author's name. So when the identity of the author and the narrator line up and the publisher has like signed off on this being like, this is the person who wrote it and they're the same person as the person in the book, Mm -hmm. we then read narratives that satisfy those conditions as making truth claims. You might even say that the autobiography is packed with conditions. (laughs) Marcel, I would not. No, I know you hate puns. I hate puns. Okay, so what does it mean 
to make a truth claim. What is that? Let me illustrate with an example that I think people around our age will remember very well and younger folks might have zero memory of. We'll see. So in 2006, Oprah got really mad at this guy named James Frey for lying in his supposed memoir, A Million Little Pieces. So Oprah had endorsed the book as part of her book club, and she had endorsed it specifically as memoir. And when she found out that it contained fictionalized events, she told Frey, she had him come back on her show and, like, confronted him. And she told him that he had betrayed the readers. I I don't know what is true, and I don't know what isn't. So first of all, I wanted to start with with the smoking gun report um, titled The Man Who Conned Oprah. And I want to know where they write. I think most of what they wrote was pretty accurate. And then she made the publisher come out oh my God. to defend her decision to classify the book as nonfiction. Ugh. So there's a few things we can gather from this incident. One is that Frey and his publisher implied, by virtue of the categorization of his book as memoir, that the events in the book had actually happened. That was like a pact, right? That the publisher and author had made with the reader. Yeah, with Oprah specifically, with it Oprah sounds like. With Oprah specifically. <laughs> and that implication, by virtue of the book's categorization and the identity of the author and subject of the book, set up as being the same person, meant that the book's events should be externally verifiable or fact-checkable. Okay, okay. Right? Those are the truth claims the book is making. Yeah, Pixar, it didn't happen. Pixar, it didn't happen. Now, Part of the issue here is that clearly Oprah just doesn't understand something pretty fundamental to how book publishing works, which is that books are not fact-checked. Oh, you know what? I'm willing to bet that a lot of people don't know that. I think a lot of readers have no idea. Books are not fact-checked, with the exception of a very small number of situations, largely situations in which the publisher is worried about legal liability. Mm-hmm. But with the exception of, like, situations like that, nonfiction books are not fact-checked. Peer-reviewed scholarly nonfiction books are not fact-checked. They're (laughs) peer-reviewed, but peer review is not fact-checking. No, it's not. That's so true. Oh, my goodness. Journalism is Mm fact-checked. Book publishing just isn't. So publishers aren't actually assessing the truth of the truth claims that their nonfiction books make. But more generally, the issue here is whether readers of life writing can justifiably expect what happens in those narratives to be true. I don't want to get too postmodern here, Hannah, (laughs) but like, what does it even mean for something to be true, man? Oh, man. I mean, this is time as a construct all over again. (laughs) But listen, Marcel. The question of what it means for something to be true is central to the whole question of how we read life writing. It's so important. So Smith and Watson point out that we, as critical readers, cannot assume that life writing contains facts. Wait, what? (laughs) Stop it, you already knew that. Oprah's going to be so mad. Oprah's going to be really mad. Instead, they say that we need to read life writing as incorporating, quote, usable facts into subjective truth. 
And obviously they put truth and scare quotes there. Always. <laughs> so we've got here the idea of a usable fact and a subjective truth. What's a usable yeah. fact? <laughs> so we can think of a usable fact as something that can be externally verified, right? So a usable fact might be like a historical event. I was born in Edmonton. That is a thing that you can fact check. Is that a usable fact? Absolutely a usable fact. And then if you write in your autobiography some other stuff about Edmonton, like I was born in Edmonton in 1984. At the time, the provincial government was blah, blah, blah. And the Edmonton Oilers were so-and-so. Like, I can't, I don't know any facts about Edmonton in 1984, but I could probably look them up and then they'd be usable facts. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like right now you're working in uh, subjective truth claims. <laughs> yeah, so a subjective truth claim might be like, I was the cutest baby anybody had ever seen. Oh, hell yeah. I was not, to be honest. <laughs> so subject- I am now. Yeah, you are now the cutest baby I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Really going to let you get through this paragraph. I, know I don't want to get through it. I want to talk about subjective truth, which is basically how those facts are framed within a particular narrative structure or framed by a particular authorial voice or reshaped by any of those self-referential practices we were talking about earlier. So in contrast to usable facts, we could define subjective truth as how those facts are framed within a particular narrative structure, authorial voice, or those shifting sets of self-referential practices we were talking about earlier. So I was born in Edmonton, usable fact. Mm -hmm. I was born in the armpit of Canada West. Subjective truth? Yes, absolutely. Because Edmonton is this like externally verifiable thing, but... Describing it as an armpit is a subjective reframing of that usable fact. Cool. I don't actually feel that way about Edmonton. I wouldn't call it the armpit. I might call it a different body part, but it wouldn't be a glamorous one. Yeah, and we can get a sense, like, you wouldn't really want to read a life narrative that was just a list of usable facts. Oh, God, no. It would be unbelievably dry. This is like Wikipedia articles really adhere to the concept of usable facts because mm. they're constantly being cited and there's very specific definitions of what forms of external evidence are legitimate. I go to Wikipedia for the facts. If I want editorializing, I'll read like an Atlantic article about the thing. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the very process of setting up some knowledge as fact and some forms of evidence as legitimate is itself a <gasps> form of narrativization or editorializing. <gasps> no! Yeah, yeah, it is. So, like, Wikipedia is, in fact, its own, you know, kind of genre with its own genre practices, and those genre practices have a particular history that we can interrogate. But we're not here to talk about Wikipedia because they don't have that in the wizarding world. <laughs> no, they don't have anything useful in the wizarding world. So let's come back to this question of truth, right? If we're getting all POMO with it and asking, you know, what constitutes truth in the first place, well, let's go back to Smith and Watson and see what they have to say. Tell me, what do they say? So they respond to the question of our autobiographies true with their own set of questions. Quote, are we expecting fidelity to the facts of their biographies? 
to lived experience, to self-understanding, to the historical moment, to social community, to prevailing beliefs about diverse identities, to the norms of autobiography as a literary genre itself, and truth for whom and for what, other readers, a loved one, the narrating I, or for the coherent person we imagine ourselves to be, end quote. Okay, on the one hand, going back to the James Frey and Oprah example, this makes me want to be like, what does it matter to Oprah Mm. if James Frey embellished the truth or if he made up stories that could have happened but didn't or something like that, you know? So that's that's my one hand. But then my other hand is like, okay, so like, should we just not expect memoirs to be true then? You know, what's really interesting about the Oprah example is that when she first found out that people had done all of this fact checking and James Frey was, you know, quote unquote lying, she, I think, went on Larry King and was like, I don't care because his memoir still speaks to the truth of a particular experience and will still be useful to people in a particular way. And I suspect that people got mad at her. And so she uh. she changed her tune. But what that sort of demonstrates to us is that the expectation of truth really depends on how and why you're reading a memoir. If you're reading a memoir for pleasure and interpreting the events as true adds to your pleasure, knock your socks off. Assume everything's true. Who cares? But... If you're reading a memoir as a historian and you're trying to treat them as evidence, then no, you should not expect them to be true in terms of documenting events as they happened. You have to interpret what information they offer you through a sort of critical reading that understands the norms of life writing of the historical period, right? You can't just treat it as a like straight up documentary. You've got to be like, You know, how are people thinking of subjectivity at this time? Like, a lot of historical autobiographies will include things that will read to us as contemporary readers as fantastical, like religious visitations. Totally, yes. Yeah. It's not particularly interesting to be like, well, was this person actually visited by an angel? Like, well, I don't know. You can't verify that one way or the other. It's more interesting to say... How does this fit within the norms of life writing of the time? What is this narrative trying to say via this kind of truth claim? Like, how does this narrative give us insight into the cosmologies that were at work? Sorry, cosmology is like a a really fancy (laughs) star-studded word for, like, worldview. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, what can we learn about worldviews of the time via these historical life narratives, for example? Or, you know, what can we learn about how people were interpreting particular events? But you wouldn't want to just read somebody's life narrative as just, like, straight up, unvarnished fact. And then if you're a literature scholar, like a scholar of life writing, your job is to think about the narrative strategies that the text is drawing on and to understand how it's operating as a text instead of assuming that it's some, again, unbiased document. So if I'm understanding you correctly, Hannah, we are not, as literary readers of life writing, looking for evidence that the life writing is true? Okay, we might be. Not because we want to fact check them or like, 
James Frey style shame them on television. But because we want to think about how the text is working. Okay, like the historians. Yeah, like the historians or like literary scholars. So, for example, Smith and Watson say we might want to look at evidence to see how the narrator represents truth claims and what kinds of authorities they refer to. So, like, what constitutes evidence for this particular narrator? Personal memories, dreams, religious visitations, external testimonies, documents, like photographs. Like, how is this person constructing their truth claims? Right. Yeah. So you don't want to necessarily know whether things are true so much as you want to think about how the text establishes trueness. Like, I really believe that I was possessed by a ghost for a day. Yeah. But I have I have no evidence for this. And anybody who wants to, like, verify that against other claims that I have been possessed by ghosts would be like, well, this is clearly a lie because she's never claimed that she was possessed by a ghost in any of the other 37 years of her life. And depending on the genre that you're working within, the establishment of those truth claims is more or less important. So if you were using your belief in that truth claim to try to, like, apply for scientific funding in order to do a study of spirit possession, then people might be like, well, do you have literally a single piece of externally verifiable evidence? You'd be like, no. And then they would be like, well, then that's not useful. That's not how science works. (laughs) External verifiability and reproducibility is like really central to the scientific method. Very important. (laughs) But if you're telling a story and expressing something that is subjectively true about your experience of your life, then my trying to establish if that is externally verifiable isn't particularly useful. It's much more useful for me to be like, okay, what does this mean? Okay, so then thinking of how we find meaning in life writing, what are some other things that we might want to pay attention to? So helpfully for us, Smith and Watson actually include in their book 24 strategies for reading life narratives. 24? 24. Alphabetized. I'm not going to summarize all of them here. They're not all pertinent to the conversation we're going to have. And also it would take too long. It sounds like they're not all relevant to Harry's journey. (laughs) They're not all relevant to Harry's journey. Or they're not all relevant to Hannah's journey through this episode. (laughs) So I'm not going to summarize them all here, but I am going to point to a couple that I think are pertinent to our discussion. And I'm going to frame them as questions because... That's generally how Smith and Watson frame these different sort of ways of reading life narratives. Okay. So first up, audience and addressee. Who are they writing to and how might the assumed audience be shaping the narrative? Next up, authority and authenticity. Does the writer position themselves as having the authority to tell the story? And if so, how do they establish that authority? Hmm. E.g., I was there, I saw it all. Hmm. Next up, coherence and closure. Does the narrative create the impression of coherence or does it seem to break down Hmm. narratively? Okay. Memory. So what are the sources of memory in the text and how are those sources relevant to the narrative's audiences and purposes? Mm Mm-hmm. Narrative plotting and modes. This is the structuralist question. Basically, what generic patterns are structuring the text? You know, is it structured as a hero's journey, for example? Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And then finally, relationality. What others inhabit the text? 
and when and how do their voices emerge? So of this list that you've provided or any of Smith & Watson's 24 strategies, can we understand them to be like mutually inclusive, mutually exclusive, some yes, some no? Yeah, yeah. No, they're absolutely not mutually exclusive ways of reading texts. Not all of them will apply to every text. You know, for example, they have one in there that is like specifically about visual representations of life history. And they're talking about like memoir comics. And it's like, okay, if you're dealing with like a graphic memoir, you've got some very specific questions you want to ask about how the visuals are structuring that narrative. Obviously not relevant in our case. But certainly you can think about, for example, audience and narrative plotting at the same time. So thinking about like, okay, who is the audience and how are they shaping the narrative is part of the way they're shaping the narrative that the audience at the time would have understood lives to follow a particular kind of structure. And so there's this connection between audience and narrative plotting you know, or relationality and authority is one of the ways that the author establishes their authority, the presence of the voices of particular others within the life narrative. So these strategies are a variety of tools that we can use to help us think through how the particular piece of life writing would have been meaningful to its audience at the time, but maybe also how it can be meaningful to us as a contemporary audience if we are different from the audience it was assuming. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, James Frey, the example I keep coming back to, you know, We, at the moment, we want to understand, like, how are people in 2006 reading this? If we're looking at the 17th century, we want to think, how are people in the 17th century reading this? And then we can also bring in our contemporary understanding. Like, I really want to think about, like, the historical emergence of our contemporary understanding of subjectivity. So I'm going to go back and treat, like, historical life writing as a way to trace this thing. So like I simultaneously need to engage it on its own historical terms. What are people doing with it in that moment? But then also I'm going to be sort of abstracting from that in order to make my own arguments about what I think is sort of happening. Yeah. Okay. And so if you are a person, for example, who like does not believe in ghosts (laughs) (laughs) and you are reading a piece of what we would call life writing that was written in the 18th or 17th century or whatever. And in that piece of life writing, the writer is talking about a haunting that they experienced or a ghost that they saw or whatever. Instead of dismissing that as lies or as fiction, you can instead approach the text with questions like, what would the audience have understood this reference to mean? Or like, what does the speaker or the narrator get from the audience by presenting this 
this scenario in this way. Yeah, and you might want to compare it to other forms of life writing at the same time to be like, okay, how conventional is this? Is this somebody who is following a particular narrative structure that needs to contain particular kinds of events? And this is one of those, you know, some sort of mystical experience is a central part of this? Or would this be like totally out of the norm for the time? And then we have to ask different kinds of questions of it. And, you know, the interesting thing is that when we start to wrap our heads around how life writing operates, then we sort of regain some of its ability to function as evidence. Mm. The, you know, the, there's an example that I think of often, which is the use of this particular book, oh, I think it's called The Downfall of the Temlahan, but it's this book that was like written by a like white 19th century anthropologist about indigenous nations in Western Canada, right? It's full of things that are like, you don't want to interpret those as true. You have to be really suspect of this person's knowledge, of the tropes and genres that they're drawing on, of how their sort of like Western framing of narrative influences the kinds of stories that they see as tellable. Mm -hmm. And yet, at the same time, that book has been used as a historical document to justify land claims for Indigenous folks that like... The ability to critically read this historical document then allows us to actually find the traces of evidence that might exist in there without assuming that the whole thing is either simply true or simply false. You know, we come back a lot of the time to the ways that binary thinking is just not useful. It's just not useful. It's just not useful. And and saying like, okay, well, here's a thing that is just a total transparent truth, and if Anything that doesn't fall into my category of total transparent truth must then be a lie is just a profoundly useless way to treat life writing, even if you are, as, say, Dumbledore is in this book, trying to use life writing as a form of evidence. Even if you are trying to understand the past through these traces of life writing, you don't want to just say, all right, here's a thing that's totally objective, or here's a thing that is falsified. You need to move beyond that binary to try to understand with more nuance what's actually happening in particular kinds of accounts. Well, you know, Hannah, this sounds like a great time to skip on over to OWLs and start talking about those in detail. Let's do it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You know whose lives remain unknowable? No, it's not the anonymous authors of Wild and Fantastic Tales. It's owls. Ooh. I want to propose 
as much as we could talk about so many aspects of life writing in this series, I want to propose that we interpret the pensive memories as a form of life writing. I think that's a great idea. And I really want to start with this quote that you pull out from Dumbledore, Mm -hmm. where he says, from this point forth, we shall be leaving the firm foundation of fact and journeying together through the murky marshes of memory into thickets of wildest guesswork. Mm. Ah, the reason I'm so taken by this is because I feel like until this moment, I've been assuming that the memories are supposed to be fact. Yes. Because they are recorded in, you know, the brain jizz or whatever it is, that we, the reader, should treat them as fact. And here, Dumbledore is saying that they're not. And I, I don't know how I missed that. I Well, I think a big part of what is happening here is that the representation of the pensive memories in the films has come to substitute how we think about them in the text. And the way that they are filmed is in such a way that it encourages an understanding that they are objective. It uses a kind of objective eye of the camera looking down on a thing. Yes. Yes. But there's actually lots of suggestions throughout how Dumbledore talks about the pensive memories that encourage us to think about them as life writing. For example, mm-hmm. that first memory where they go and see Marope and the Gaunts in their, you know, terrible shack, Dumbledore says that he got this memory from Bob Ogden. And he says, He died some time ago, but not before I had tracked him down and persuaded him to confide these recollections to me. Confide these recollections. Hmm. Like confide immediately suggests narrative voice. So this is through the voice of Bob Ogden. And recollections immediately suggests a sort of attempt from somebody in the present to reconstruct literally recollect something that happened in the past. Of course. Of course. Okay. Even more suggestive is when Dumbledore takes Harry into one of his own memories, and he says to Harry, I think you will find it both rich in detail and satisfyingly accurate. Which tells us that not all memories should be treated as having the same evidentiary power. That, in fact, we need to read them as framed through the narrative voice of the particular person doing the recollecting. You know, what is happening right now is I am having a moment of reckoning (laughs) with myself. I am reckoning with my own demons and coming to realize that all of my frustrations and complaints with the representation of memory in these books is my own fault because of how I was interpreting the representation. (laughs) Okay, this is exciting. The other big sign we have that we need to treat them as life writing is how much time Dumbledore spends interpreting them and making it very clear that his interpretations are 
interpretations, right? Like, after they've seen this memory of Marope, he says, Personally, I am inclined to think that Marope used a love potion. I'm sure it would have seemed more romantic to her. And then later he says, you know, again, this is guesswork, but I believe that Marope, who is deeply in love with her husband, could not bear to continue enslaving him by magical means. So part of what we're getting is the life writing of Bob Ogden. Mm -hmm. And then part of what we're getting is Dumbledore's own, like, he is doing a different kind of life writing here, right? He's doing a kind of like biographical piecing together based on evidence that he is explicitly interpreting. Okay, so Dumbledore is Voldemort's biographer, and he is collecting subjective truth claims. Combining them with usable facts. Combining them with usable facts, and then presenting them to Harry. So the information that Harry is getting is mediated, like, multiple times over. Yes. Harry is not getting anything close to objective truth. He's not even getting like eyewitness account. He's he's getting eyewitness account that has been recollected and then shared and then interpreted. Yeah, I mean, we can think of the pensives as eyewitness accounts, for sure. Like an eyewitness account is a person who saw or experienced a thing recounting that thing back to you, mm-hmm. right? So Bob Ogden's memory is his eyewitness account of what happened. Dumbledore's memory is his eyewitness account, and he is encouraging us to recognize him as a better witness than Bob Ogden is because he is better at recalling details, right? So Dumbledore's like an expert witness. And we see more of this, right? Like when we see Morphin's memory of when Voldemort came to get the ring, there's a point where the memory goes dark because Morphin could not remember anything from that point onwards. So we get these glimpses of like, We are not seeing this from outside. We are seeing what Morphin remembers. So then something I've never thought about before, and maybe this only, maybe this is only useful if we're thinking of the representation of these memories in relation to how they are portrayed in the films, but I've never really thought before about the presence of details in the memories themselves, right? Because It's true that where we are told there are gaps, we can recognize that there are gaps. But it hadn't really occurred to me before that, like, Bob Ogden's memory, for example, might have been like, you know, when you use portrait mode to take a picture of something and so everything around it is blurry? Buzzes, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it's like, there's there's Bob Ogden. (laughs) And, like, the specific thing he's talking about in portrait mode and everything else is kind of blurry around it. Yeah, or you know that thing where you'll be like, reading a memoir and somebody will recount in dialogue form a conversation they had 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. If you actually sit down and think about it, you're like, well, no way they remember word for word the content of a conversation they had 15 years ago. They are fictionalizing this conversation based on their memories in order to make it fit within the convention of how we as readers expect narratives to work. Mm -hmm. That's right. Because otherwise they would be like, and then I recall that we kind of had a conversation that was roughly about these things. And so in, say, Bob Ogden's memory, Mm -hmm. there's no way he remembers, word for word, every aspect of that conversation. (laughs) No. It's a reconstruction. And it is probably also a reconstruction that makes him appear in a particular light, right? Yeah. Whether or not that's deliberate, like it's a reconstruction that reconstructs what he remembers and what he remembers is subjective. 
because he only ever has encountered this information subjectively through his perspective. So what he's recollecting for us is his perspective of what happened, which is how we treat eyewitness accounts. Right. Bob Ogden doesn't appear to be withholding any information from us, Mm -hmm. right? Like Dumbledore seems to have successfully persuaded him to provide information because he hasn't gooped up the memory with like weird fog or anything. But we have no reason to take for granted that Bob Ogden was a sympathetic narrator in that exchange. So maybe all the usable facts align, but why do we believe that he's the good guy in this exchange, right? Like, we already know that this entire book series treats Slytherins like the de facto villain. And so why is it that we're assuming that these, like, literal poor people who are literally ostracized from all of the communities surrounding them, why do we assume that they're the bad guys in this story? Let me read to you a passage from Bob Ogden's memory, and then we can talk about how much we believe Bob Ogden. He writes, The man standing before them had thick hair so matted with dirt it could have been any color. Several of his teeth were missing. His eyes were small and dark and stared in opposite directions. He might have looked comical, but he did not. The effect was frightening, and Harry could not blame Ogden for backing away several more paces before he spoke. Well, that sounds a little bit classist. Doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like maybe this is a sort of caricature of how Bob Ogden remembers encountering these, like, working-class people who he had a frightening and violent encounter with and who he perhaps has, like, retroactively reframed as being monstrous and terrifying. Yeah, and I think likewise, I mean, everybody knows that I'm, like, mildly obsessed with Marope. I, like, want to know so much more than we get. But we can also think about, like, how Bob Ogden, like, pities her. And again, that's all his account, right? Like, there are no usable facts to, like, prove to us that he was sympathetic towards her in the encounter, right? Like, yeah, all we have is his perspective. And then his perspective, his memory of Marope, is the evidence that Dumbledore uses to piece together what he explicitly calls guesswork about what he thinks happens next. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so I think there's an interesting difference between understanding the subjectivity of these pensive memories and then thinking about the deliberate obfuscation that Slughorn does. Yes. Because the difference here is that Slughorn remembers something and is trying to lie about it. Mm-hmm. Have you ever gotten in, like, a fight with a family member about just, like, totally different recollections of the same event? I have talked to my therapist about it before, being like, one of us is crazy, and it's either her or it's me, and frankly, I don't know which one of us it is. I mean, and the answer is probably it's neither, because that's not how memory works. But the intensity of that feeling of like, but I remember it, and having somebody else be like, yes, I also remember it, that's not what happened. It's like, A fundamentally useless argument because, for the most part, like two conflicting eyewitness reports, neither of which can be verified with external usable facts, is just like, we'll just smack our our heads against each other. But in this case, what we've got isn't somebody saying, well, this is how I remember it. 
It's somebody saying, I remember something that I don't want you to know. And so I am going to actively attempt to reshape this memory. And then I think in addition to that, we can also think about like, what do the holders of the memories know or believe will be the consequences of sharing them too, right? So like, how will those memories be deployed? Slughorn seems to know that he did a bad thing and that he could get in trouble. <laughs> he he seems to have a real sense that he fucked up. Whereas Bob Ogden is like, I was just doing my job. And Morphin's memory was extracted from him non-consensually via legalimency. I mean, you know, Dumbledore claims it was for a good reason because he was going to use it to prove that Morphin hadn't actually committed these murders. And But, you know, the fact of the matter is this is not Morphin accounting for himself. This is Dumbledore sort of extracting a confession from him, essentially, under duress. Um, and so understanding these different contexts in which these people are speaking, right, Bob Ogden is operating in a professional context and, you know, disclosing these recollections in a professional context, you know, versus Morphin, who's operating in a really different context. We can see, for example, Morphin is making less overt attempt to fill in gaps. Mm-hmm. So when he doesn't remember something, it just disappears. Whereas like Bob Ogden is giving us his recollection, which we might then interpret based on its context and its framing. We might then interpret it as working harder to fill in gaps, right? Because that's his job to give an account of this thing that happened. That's right. And then Dumbledore's memories, now that I'm thinking about them, even the way that they are narrativized in the text they just have more detail in them, right? Like, we don't know anything about the suit that Bob Ogden was wearing, do we? But we know that Dumbledore was wearing, what, like a purple crushed velvet suit or something like that? Yeah. Like, that's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And Harry's ability to see that suit and comment on it means that Dumbledore remembers exactly the outfit that he was wearing when he went and spoke to Tom Riddle for the first time. Maybe this was a special suit Dumbledore bought, or maybe Dumbledore is just a person who remembers his outfits well. But he doesn't normally wear suits, right? Because he normally wears robes. Oh my goodness, he does normally wear robes, so maybe he remembers the suit for the same reason. Anyway, sorry, keep, keep going. What this gets at is the need to ask these kinds of questions. It's not that relevant whether Dumbledore was actually wearing that suit. <laughs> You're right. The suit is not what's important, but the suit becomes representative of Dumbledore's claim to remember in exquisite detail, right? Precisely. The suit becomes one of the ways that Dumbledore establishes his authority as a first-person narrator and one of the forms of evidence that he includes in order to establish the truth claims of his own account, Oh my goodness. So this brings us back to those questions that Smith and Watson gave us for usefully thinking about life writing, our strategies for thinking about life writing. So I want us to ask these questions of the pensive memories. I've got the Rona. My brain is mush. Let's fucking go. Okay. Evidence. How do these narratives make use of evidence? How and where do they make truth claims. 
Okay, so like we've just been talking about, Bob Ogden's memory seems to rely on his position of authority as a ministry representative doing a legitimate ministry-appointed task, and any resistance that he meets in doing that task is clearly evidence of the wrongfulness or hostility of the people that he's there to get in line. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. So in that case, his evidence is focused on proving his interpretation of that family. Mm -hmm. And so we don't need evidence like what he's wearing, what the path looks like, what the, you know, we don't need surrounding contextual evidence. He's not trying to establish his own thoroughness. Mm -hmm. He's trying to establish something about the Gaunt family. That's right. Versus Dumbledore, right? We've talked about the evidence of the suit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Relationality. What others inhabit the text and when and how do their voices emerge? Okay. So in all of these examples, we have the rememberer representing the voices of the others. And so presumably in some way or another that reflects back on the rememberer. Yeah. So we've got lots of other voices emerging in all of these pensive memories, right? None of them are memories of somebody alone. They're all memories of somebody's encounter with someone else. That's right. We can notice significant absences. You know, for example, in Dumbledore's memory, there's really only like a small number of others he interacts with. Presumably, there were like other kids who were probably also shouting things in the background. There was noise on the street. There were like there would have been other noise happening. There would have been other voices. Mm-hmm. Those voices are not present because they're not significant. Gotcha. Memory. <laughs> what are the sources of memory <laughs> in the text? And how are those sources relevant to the narrative's purposes? I think we need to talk about magic here. Oh, okay, okay. So in all of these examples, memory is represented as as something that you can withdraw from another person with or Mm -hmm. without their consent. And some people even have the ability to adjust their memories deliberately in order to to withhold information. Or to, you know, we know that um, occlumency is a thing. So some people have more or less ability to extract other people's memories or to protect their own memories. But memory is treated like magically as a thing that can be extracted. But again, I can take your memory out of your head and put it in the pensive, but I'm still looking at your memory. It's still a memory. It's a recollection. It's a account, right? All of this language really importantly sort of emphasizes that subjectivity. Speaking of subjectivity, authority How does the writer position themselves as having the authority to tell the story? How did they establish that authority? This one is a bit trickier because Dumbledore tells us right away that he has the authority to to tell his memory. He literally says that his memory is rich in detail and satisfyingly accurate. So he makes usable fact claims. And in so doing establishes himself as a person who can authoritatively comment on the truth claims of any memories. Of course. 
Of course. Okay. Right? The main authority in these scenes is Dumbledore himself. Because often Harry will be confused and it's Dumbledore there who is explaining what's going on. Dumbledore retrieved the memories. Dumbledore has stored the memories. Dumbledore has selected the memories. Dumbledore frames the memories via interpretation. Mm -hmm. He frames his own memory as the most authoritative, but the way that he demonstrates that authority is simply by virtue of his claimed ability to say what is authoritative and what is not. This is very, very classic. Yeah. (laughs) Classic. Classic Classic Dumbledore. Dumbledore. (laughs) Coherence and closure. Does the narrative create the impression of coherence or seem to break down? I mean, this is delightful because Slughorn's memory literally breaks down. Literally breaks down. It's how we know that he's fucked with it. Which suggests to us that these memories are being structured such that they have narrative coherence. That's right. Which, like... Memories don't! Memories do not... They don't have narrative coherence. I mean, so, I mean, maybe sometimes they do, but the narrative coherence of one's memory does not equal the verifiability or the factualness or the veracity of the memory. And Dumbledore says of Slughorn's memory that the obliterating of certain parts was crudely done, and that he says that is all to the good, for it shows that the true memory is still there beneath the alterations. So again, (gasps) right, there's this sense that like, I spotted incoherence, and I am interpreting incoherence as being a sign of falsification, because true memories are coherent, which is bonkers. (laughs) All of this is just making me think about the ways that we in our society treat truth as a verifiable thing. And Mm -hmm. so something either happened or it didn't. And in the court of law, we can prove that someone is lying. Yeah, so much of how we talk about evidence and the legitimacy of particular accounts has to do with exactly this stuff, right? These life writing questions, these strategies that we use to interpret whether or not we think things are accurate or not. And one of those, we see this being used to silence survivors of sexual violence all the time is this expectation of coherence. That's right. That we expect people's memories to follow these structures, these coherent narrative structures. And if we actually step back and say like, well, why? And where do those structures come from? Mm -hmm. So last one. Do they come from the last one? They come from the last one, (laughs) which is narrative (laughs) plotting. So what generic patterns are structuring the text? Okay. So this feels like a real meta question, but (laughs) because the Harry Potter books are fiction and because the Harry Potter books are told in the format of third person limited, which we have interpreted to largely be from Harry's perspective, but not consciously from Harry's perspective, the ways that the expectations for memories are set up logically rely on the same kind of narrative structures and storytelling structures, plotting structures as, you know, the books themselves, because essentially they're the same thing. (laughs) The The Harry Potter books are just like a big pensive. It gets really tricky when we think about narrative structure, for sure, because we do have to think about the larger narrative structure of the books themselves. And the fact that, like, for the most part, we only know what Harry knows. 
in moments when we are being shown things Harry does not know, the narrative very clearly signals that to us, such as in the opening chapters of this book, right? We've got two opening scenes that are very clearly structured to make different kinds of truth claims that are not based in Harry's perspective. But every time we encounter a pensive memory, we encounter it through Harry's encounter of the memory. Mm-hmm. And the way that they are structured within Harry's story is as evidence. So when he encounters them, they are, you know, even in the last book, right, they're evidence of a thing that happened that he didn't know, right? His father's treatment of Snape. And then much more explicitly here, they are being used as evidence that Dumbledore is piecing together. And so Mm -hmm. evidence or a first-person eyewitness account is its own kind of genre. And so that is one sort of genre expectation that is structuring how we encounter these pensive memories. And then another genre at work is that of the lesson, because Mm. these memories are being presented to Harry as lessons from Dumbledore. And so he frames them in this very pedagogical way where he's like, this is what I think this is going to mean, or this is what I want you to pay attention to. Like at one point, After they come out of a memory, Dumbledore says, I want to draw your attention to certain features of the scene we have just witnessed, for they have a great bearing on the matters we shall be discussing in future meetings. (laughs) Right? It's a pedagogical framing. He's teaching Harry how to read these memories. But what is really key here is, I think, that the strategies for reading life writing give us a set of actually really useful strategies for thinking about memory and evidence that allows us to take like a more critical sort of complicated approach to the question of like what we actually know about the past in these books. I gotta say, Hannah, I feel like this is a great place to end this conversation because it's getting us ready for all those exciting conversations we're going to have when we start book seven. Mm, I can't wait. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes on our beautiful coach-designed website or our designer coach website, ohwitchplease.ca. Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you want to hang out with us some more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease with a ton of hot new content thanks to our Witch Please apprentice, Zoe Mix. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Zoe. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon, all 1,000 of you. Woo! What a satisfying number. Your support is what makes this team possible. You know, the original run of our podcast was great in its own way, but there's just no denying that our teamwork makes this dream work. (laughs) If you're not already a Patreon supporter, there's never been a better time to jump on the bandwagon. We have started releasing blooper reels and comic adaptations of those blooper reels. Honestly, it's so, it's so good. It's so good. 
And you should head over to patreon.com slash witch please to learn more. Of course, if you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to lend us a hand, we would absolutely love it if you dropped us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to know I'll never lose affection for podcast reviewers that went before. Went before. I know I'll often stop and think about them. Think about them. In my life, I love crystal covert uni question mark brackets and a request for an episode about all the young dudes, also known as all the young dudes episode, please. (laughs) Yeah, we love you more. We love you more. We'll be back next episode to wrap up our discussion of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. But until then... Later, witches. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.